Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Do you believe in the faith or just your faith? Is there a difference between the faith and your faith? Because if you're just having faith in whatever you like, whatever you just want to believe, that may not be the faith. You might have faith in your own idea of Jesus rather than the true Jesus. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because a couple of months ago, I went to see a play by my friend Max McLean. In fact, we had Max on the show after we went to the play. It was a play about C.S. Lewis, uh, further in, further up. It was a play that, and it still is, it's out there on tour. You could go to uh, C.S. Lewis on stage and see where Max is doing this play uh, over the next several months. It's still out on tour. And it was a play about Lewis after he became a Christian. The first play that Max did was The Most Reluctant Convert, which is also a movie. But uh, that was Lewis becoming a Christian. Now, this new play, Further In, Further Up, is about Lewis as a Christian and some of the things he wrote as a Christian. And one of the books that uh, Max uh, used or quoted from quite a bit in the play was a book that is called God in the Dock, Essays on Theology and Ethics. Now, I've had this book for many years. I've read sections of it. But after I saw the play, I said, I got to go back to God in the Dock. I haven't looked at it in quite a while. Uh, let me just pick through some of the essays in here. Now, this book is a collection of essays that was put together in about 1970. So this is about, uh, what, seven years after Lewis died. And some of these essays are just that. They were essays that Lewis wrote. Others, though, are presentations. They actually weren't written down. They were presentations. And one of these presentations was turned into a written form, and it's in this book, God in the Dock. It's called Christian Apologetics. And as I read this, I said, wow, this was actually spoken to a group of Anglican ministers uh, during Easter of 1945. So think about what's going on Easter 1945. The world, world War II is still going on. Now, at that point, the Allies, of course, were about to win, but did anybody know exactly when that would happen? No. Hitler was still alive. I think at the end of April, if I'm not mistaken, in 1945, Hitler committed suicide. But while... Uh, the war is going on. Lewis is talking to Anglican ministers. And that's what this Christian apologetics essay is in the book, God in the Dock. And I want to read sections of it today because although he did this in 1945, ladies and gentlemen, he could he could have written this yesterday. That's how ahead of or ahead of his time he was, C.S. Lewis. 
And there's going to be so many lessons that pertain to the culture right now in 2023 that as you read this, you're going to say, wow, this is amazing. So let's go through some sections of it and we'll comment as we go. Uh, Lewis is talking, as I say, to a group of Anglican ministers, and he says, this is your duty, not specially as Christians or as priests, but as honest men. What's the duty he's speaking of? He says, there is a danger here of the clergy developing a special professional conscience, which obscures the very plain moral issue. He says, men... All right, I got to stop here because I got to set this up. He Just prior to this, he's talking about how the faith has certain boundaries, that there are certain doctrines that uh, you need to believe in order to be a Christian, these foundational doctrines. And of course, Lewis later would write all these in a book called Mere Christianity. In fact, he had Mere Christianity, for those of you who don't know, is really a collection of radio talks that Lewis gave during the war on the BBC. And mere Christianity, in his view, are the essentials or contain the essentials of the Christian faith, whether you're Catholic or Protestant or Orthodox or whatever. He'd say, look, all of these essentials of the faith, every Bible-believing Christian would agree on. And that's basically what mere Christianity is. So he says there are certain borders, certain doctrines that you have to believe in order to be a Christian. And he says here, men who have passed beyond these boundary lines in either direction are apt to protest that they have come by their unorthodox opinions honestly. In other words, there are priests and clergy in the Anglican church at the time who are saying, you know, I don't really believe these essential uh, doctrines anymore of the Anglican church or of the Christian faith. And I came to these new beliefs honestly. So Lewis says, okay, that's, I get that. He says, however, we never doubted that the unorthodox opinions were honestly held. What we complain of is you're continuing your ministry after you have come to hold them. Whoa. What does that make you think of, ladies and gentlemen? It makes me think of what is so-called or what is now called progressive Christianity. These people are claiming to be Christians, yet they've passed over the boundary line that would define the Christian faith. When, you're, when you claim you're a Christian, but you deny the atonement, for example, which many progressive Christians do, when you try and say the atonement is child abuse and God would never do that, then you've passed over the boundary of what is known as Christianity. Without the atonement, Christianity is lost. That's the, that's the essence of Christianity, that God added humanity to his deity, came into this space-time continuum, lived the perfect life in our place, and then allowed us, the creatures that rebelled against him, to torture and kill him, so he could take our punishment on himself, and then we could be forgiven and given his righteousness. Without the atonement, Christianity is destroyed. There is no Christianity without the atonement. And yet you have so-called progressive Christians calling themselves obviously Christians, 
when they're denying a core doctrine of Christianity. Uh, and it's not divine child abuse, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, because Jesus volunteered to take this mission on. You remember, he was praying to the Father, and he said, Lord, if there's any other way, um, let this cup pass from me. But if there is no other way, it's not my will, Father, it's your will. And he went to his death to save you and me from our sins. And so Lewis says, we're not, we're not saying that you're being dishonest when you say you no longer believe uh, these tenets of Christianity. What we're saying is, why do you still call yourself a Christian then? He goes on to say this. He says, we always knew that a man who makes his living as a paid agent of the conservative party may honestly change his views and honestly become a communist. What we deny is that we can honestly continue to be a conservative agent and to receive money from one party while he supports the policy of another. Exactly. If you were a conservative and now you're a communist, don't keep calling yourself a conservative. Call yourself a communist and join that party and get paid by them. And yet... We have professionals, even professional clergy, claiming they're Christians and they're denying essentials of the Christian faith. And we're going to see much more of this as we go through this essay together. This is, there's so many aha moments in this essay. You don't want to miss the rest of it. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network, 180 stations around the country. Also in podcast, it's called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, so you can check it out there. And we're back in just two minutes. Don't go anywhere. Ladies and gentlemen, this Monday night, if my voice holds up, you can see I got a little bit of a... uh, a little bit of a cold or something coming on. We'll be doing our third episode in archaeology, digging up the Bible. It's going to be live streamed on our YouTube channel and website, crossexamine.org, 7.30 Eastern. It will not be archived. you got to watch it live if you want to see it. This will ultimately wind up on our TV show, the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist TV show, which airs on DirecTV channel 378. It also airs on Roku. If you have Roku, 9 p.m. Eastern time on Wednesday night, you can see the program uh, the shows that are airing right now are our uh, our series on Galatians. We went through Galatians verse by verse, 13 one-hour uh, sessions on that. So if you're interested in Galatians, and you should be, Paul, one of Paul's greatest works. In fact, Luther called Galatians my mini Romans. <laughs> That's what it is. It, it, it defends the gospel almost like no other book Paul has written, probably like no other book Paul has written other than Romans. Uh, So we're going through that on the TV show, but we started a new series, Digging Up the Bible. You can join us Monday night at 7.30 Eastern. Also, if you want to get the TV show and you don't have DirecTV or Roku, you can watch it streaming on our website, 9 p.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday nights. Just go there. Also, the next day, the 21st, I'll be at Liberty University, Lord willing. We're going to talk about why we can't not legislate morality. And that will be live streamed as well. I think it starts around 7 p.m. Check our website for more. And for those of you who are just hearing this uh, on uh, Friday or Saturday, uh, I'm in Dallas with the Discovery Institute this weekend on their Science and Faith Conference. It's at Dallas Baptist University. I'll be there with Steve Meyer, Nancy Piercy, 
uh, many others. Uh, if you're in the Dallas area, would love to see you over there. Check our website for the details. Okay, we're going through God in the Dock, uh, these essays that Lewis has written, and we're just looking at one essay in this uh this book, and by the way, this is quite a hefty book. It's over 300 pages of, of essays and presentations Lewis has given, C.S. Lewis, that is. And we're, we're talking about Christian apologetics, and in the first segment we talked about how Lewis is pointing out there are certain boundaries of the Christian faith that once you traverse these boundaries, uh, you are no longer a Christian. And uh, what Lewis goes on to say, uh, he, he says this, we are defending Christianity, well, let me back up. Let me read this whole section here because it's so good. <laughs> he says, Even when we have thus ruled out teaching, which is in direct contradiction to our profession, we must define our task still further. We are to defend Christianity itself. The faith preached by the apostles, attested by the martyrs, embroiled, or I should say embroiled, embodied in the creeds, expounded by the fathers, this must be clearly distinguished from the whole of what any one of us may think about God and man. Each of us has his individual emphasis. Each holds an addition to the faith, many opinions which seem to him to be consistent with it and true and important. And so perhaps they are. But as apologists, it is not our business to defend them. What does he mean by them? These extra things that we believe are maybe true as a result of Christianity, but they're not explicit in Christianity. He says, we're supposed to defend the faith, not these extra beliefs that we might have. And here's, what, here's, the, here's the key money line for me. He says, we are defending Christianity, not my religion. He has my religion in quotes. When we mention our personal opinions, we must always make quite clear the difference between them and the faith itself. And then he goes on to talk about when Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says, I have, uh, this is my opinion, not from the Lord. He says, this distinction, which is demanded by honesty, also gives the apologist a great tactical advantage. The great difficulty, listen to this, ladies and gentlemen. This is so true. I mean... <laughs> He says, the great difficulty is to get modern audiences to realize that you are preaching Christianity solely and simply because you happen to think it is true. They always suppose you are preaching it because you like it or think it is good for society or something of that sort. All right, let me stop right here. A lot of times, well, let me, let me back up because... It used to be, and probably even before Lewis's time, this was the case, was that we believed in Christianity because we thought it was true. And it seems in modern times, people aren't asking whether or not Christianity is true. What they're asking is, is Christianity good? Is it helpful to me? Will it help me in my life? Will it help society? That's what many people think Christianity is. Is it beneficial? Not whether or not it's true. They want to know if it's beneficial. Is it good? And there's a difference, therefore, between 
the view of a religion as being true and the view of a religion as being helpful. We might say the helpful viewpoint on religion is a functional view of religion. Well, it just works for me. You know, it helps me get what I want out of life. That's why I believe it. Not because I think the doctrines are true. It reminds me years ago when I was in Dallas at a, uh, we're doing a fearless faith seminar. And by the way, we're, we're resurrecting the fearless faith uh, seminar. For those of you that want Jim Wallace, myself, and Elisa Childers to come to your church uh, and uh, talk about how you should be fearless with your faith and how to defend the faith and share it with others, go to our website, crossexamine.org, and look for the fearless faith um, on the, look for Fearless Faith on the website. We'll see about coming to your church and doing that. In any event, we're at this Fearless Faith event down in Dallas, Texas, and we're at the book table, and some lady comes up to me, and she goes, uh, uh, you, got a, you got a book on Buddhism? I said, Buddhism? Why? She said, well, um, my friend who used to be a Christian just became a Buddhist. And I said, uh, I don't know your friend at all, but can I ask you a question? Yeah, sure, go ahead. Uh, did your formerly Christian friend recently begin to do something that Christians would consider immoral, that Christianity would consider immoral? And she said, oh, yeah. Like, I guess she was living with her boyfriend or something. You know, I said, you don't need a book on Buddhism. She, she's not a Buddhist because she thinks Buddhism's true. She's a Buddhist because she can have spirituality without moral accountability. That's why she wants to be a Buddhist. You can say you're spiritual, but then do whatever you want. And she was like, oh, yeah. Because, again, it seems that most people don't even care whether something's true or not when it comes to a, a religious viewpoint. They just want to know, is it going to work for me? Well, as my friend Jay Warner Wallace has pointed out, a lot of times he'll say, look, Christianity just doesn't work. It'd be much easier to lie, cheat, and steal to get what I want than try and do things honestly. It doesn't work for me, but it's true, and that's why I follow it. And Lewis is saying the same thing. We need to convince people that we're believing Christianity because it's true, not because it works. Here's what he says. Now, obviously, long-term, it does work, but short-term, it doesn't. You know, short-term, lying works. It does. <laughs> Short-term stealing works. It does. You can, you can do false things and it can work. But long-term, it doesn't. And when I say long-term, I mean in eternity. It's not, not going to work. Yeah, people may get away with crimes here on earth, but there, there is a judgment day. Anyway, here's what Lewis says after he says that we're not preaching it because we like it or think it is good for society or something of that sort. We're, we're, we're preaching it because it's true. That's why we're defending it. He goes on to say, now, a clearly maintained distinction between the faith actually says and what you would like it to have said or what you understand it or what you would personally find helpful or think probable forces your audience to realize that you are tied to your data just as the scientist is tied by the results of his experiments. That you are not just saying that you like. You're, you're not just saying what you like. This immediately helps them to realize that what is being discussed is a question about objective fact, not gas about ideas and points of view. I love that phrase, not gas about ideas and points of view. When you're tied to the data, when you're tied to the Bible, when you're tied to the truth, when you're tied to 
what Jesus said, when you're tied to what the apostles said, when you're tied to the great, uh, the great uh, creeds of the faith, when you're tied to the truth, then you can let other people know that anything that deviates from that is just your opinion. And you want to be defending the faith, not your faith. You want to be defending the religion, not your religion. And, I, you know, I guess it's human nature to do this, but it, it kind of baffles me sometimes when I see these people who just want to toss so many of the essential doctrines of the faith out and still call themselves Christians. I mean, why bother? Why not just come up with a new religion and divorce it completely with Christianity? I mean, why call yourself a Christian? Is that just a deceptive gas about trying to attract people into your church, whatever you call it? Is that what it is? Because it's not Christianity. To say that, say, the atonement didn't happen, or the resurrection didn't happen, or the Bible is full of errors. This is not Christianity. This is your own guess about your own preferences, your own ideas, your own faith. Whatever it is, it's not Christianity. You say, well, who are you, Frank, to say well, who's a Christian and who isn't? Well, let me, let me give you an illustration or analogy here. Let's suppose that we were all at the base of Mount Sinai. We're all Jews. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. He comes down a couple of days later, and he says, here are the Ten Commandments. And we look at those Ten Commandments, and we go, hey, Moses, we don't like those ten. We have our own ten. Should we call ourselves followers of Yahweh if we say that? No, of course not. We're not following Yahweh. We're following ourselves. We're rejecting what Yahweh said. So why should we call ourselves followers of Yahweh? It would be completely disingenuous for us to call ourselves followers of Yahweh. Just like, in my view, it's completely disingenuous to call yourself a Christian when you're denying the essentials of the faith. You're denying what the scriptures clearly say, especially on the essentials of the faith. Yes, there are, as we've talked about, there are these disputable matters, as Paul even admits in Romans chapter 14. Don't impose your view on a disputable matter on someone else. But yes, there are disputable matters, but there are essential matters as well. And that's why Paul says, when people are bringing these divisive heresies into, into your congregation, get these people out of there. Expel the immoral brother. All right, a lot more right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network, back in two minutes. Where can you go to learn apologetics and how to defend the faith from people like Greg Kokel, Jay Warner Wallace, Richard Howe, Elisa Childers, Brett Kunkel, Natasha Crane, Sean McDowell, Jorge Gill, David Wood, Bobby Conway, and myself. You can take CIA online, the Cross-Examine Instructor Academy online. Yes, we do it live every year. This year, it's going to be out in Albuquerque, New Mexico at the end of July. If you want to apply for that, you better do so quickly because we only take 60 students 
That's it. But if you can't get there and you want to take it online, you can do so. And there's a 20% early bird discount that ends February 20th. Just go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. You'll see it there. Uh, the four instructors that you will have live uh, in this class are myself, Elisa Childers, Natasha Crane, and Jay Warner Wallace. But you'll get the benefit of all those other people in video lectures that I just mentioned a minute ago if you take the online class. So check all that out. That's CIA online. Go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. Okay, we're back to dispelling the gas that uh, people who claim to be Christians and not real and aren't really Christians put out. And Lewis, C.S. Lewis, wrote this essay back in 1945, and apparently there was a lot of, I guess, apostasy going on in his own Church of England. And he's saying, look, if you're going to defend the faith, defend the faith. Don't defend your faith. Don't defend your religion. Defend the religion. Stop putting out gas about your own personal viewpoints. Here's what he goes on to say. Again, this is from the essay, Christian Apologetics, in the book, God in the Dock. By the way, the um, God in the Dock, why is it called God in the Dock? He actually mentions in this essay why he calls it God in the Dock. So I'll get, I'll get to it a little bit later. In any event, he goes on to say, this scrupulous care to preserve the Christian message as something distinct from one's own ideas has one very good effect upon the apologist himself. It forces him again and again, to face up to those elements in original Christianity which he personally finds obscure or repulsive. Ooh. That's one thing that the progressive Christians are saying. There are aspects of traditional Christianity that are obscure or repulsive. And what do the progressive Christians do? Well, they just expel those things which they find obscure or repulsive out of the Christian faith. And they say, well, this is not essential Christianity. What we're saying is Christianity. But here's what Lewis says about that. Uh, the apologist is saved from the temptation to skip or to slur or ignore what he finds disagreeable. And the man who yields to that temptation will, of course, never progress in Christian knowledge. Ooh, wow. Wait a minute. You see what he just said here? The so-called progressive Christians never progress. Why? Because they only believe what they find agreeable. They don't investigate it. They don't get into it. They don't push against their own beliefs to try and see what God really thinks. They just jettison anything, anything they think they don't like or anything they don't like. Well, how do you learn that way? Answer, you don't. That's one of Lewis's points. Let me read that again. He says, the man who yields to that temptation will, of course, never progress in Christian knowledge. For obviously, the doctrines which one finds easy are the doctrines which give Christian sanction to truths you already knew. The new truth which you do not know and which you need must, in the very nature of things, be hidden precisely in the doctrines you least like and least understand. It is just the same here as in science. The phenomenon which is troublesome, which doesn't fit in the current scientific theories, is the phenomenon which compels reconsideration and thus leads to new knowledge. Science progresses because scientists, instead of running away from such troublesome phenomena or hushing them up, are constantly seeking them out. 
In the same way, there will be progress in Christian knowledge only as long as we accept the challenge of the difficult or repellent doctrines. A liberal, he has this in quotes, a liberal Christianity which considers itself free to alter the faith whenever the faith looks perplexing or repellent must be completely stagnant. Progress is made only into a resisting material. Man, is this guy ahead of his time or what? That's exactly right. You see, let me... Let me comment on what he said here. He's saying that stag you're, you're stagnant because you're not challenged to learn beyond your personal preferences. You just say, oh, I don't like that, so let's just jettison that. I don't like the LGBTQ prohibitions. Let's just jettison that. I don't like the atonement. Let's just jettison that. They don't investigate them. They don't, they don't say, well, maybe God's smarter than I am. Not maybe. He is. Maybe there's a reason that sexual morality is the way it is. Maybe there's a reason the atonement was necessary for us to be saved. There is, because God is infinitely just. How can he allow unjust creatures like you and me to go unpunished if he's infinitely just? He can't. So he's got to punish an innocent substitute in our place. And this is the problem. This is one of the problems with progressive Christianity, is that they... They think Jesus just came as an example rather than a substitute. Jesus, Jesus's primary mission was not to be our example. His primary mission was to be our substitute. To take our sins from us. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The son of man came to seek what was lost. The son of man did not come to make bad people good. He came to make bad people live. Now, by extension, once you make bad people live, once you get them saved, then out of gratitude, they will do good works. But the primary mission is not to do good works. The primary mission is to be saved and then sanctified, then do good works. And so Lewis is saying that, ironically, the people who say they're progressive are not progressive at all. They don't advance beyond their own preferences. They simply think that God is made in their image rather than the other way around. Look, if there's if if you if your God agrees with you on every single issue, you probably don't have the true God. Because God is infinite. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows how we were designed and what we were designed for to know him and then to make him known. He knows all this and he can see how all this fits together and he has reasons for giving us marching orders to go in this direction and not that direction. And we say, God, I don't like that. I don't want to go that way. I want to go that way. Well, you have the free will to do that, but don't think it is wise. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its way ends in death, said Solomon in Proverbs 14. So Lewis is pointing this out, that if God agrees with everything you agree on, or agrees with you on everything, you probably don't have the true God. And by the way, the Bible disagrees with every culture at some point. For example, and Tib Keller has made this point, 
that here in America, we love Jesus' teaching, love your enemies. We say that's right. We ought to love our enemies. But we don't like Jesus' teaching on sexual morality. And yes, Jesus did speak on sexual immorality. He said it's not what comes uh, or not, not what goes into a man that makes him unclean. It what, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. And that's what he talks about things like theft and sexual immorality. And sexual immorality covered all sexual activity outside of the sexual activity of a man and a woman inside of marriage. So it included adultery. It included rape. It included homosexuality. It included bestiality. Those were all incest. It included, those were all under the category of sexual immorality. So when people say, oh, Jesus never spoke about that. No, he sure did. He didn't use the word homosexuality, or he didn't use the word rape, or he may not have used the word bestiality, as far as we know, but he used the category under which all of those activities were grouped. Sure, he didn't speak about felony home invasion, but he did speak about theft, the category under which felony home invasion is. But I digress. We here in the West, we like what Jesus taught about loving your enemies, but we might not like what he taught about sexual immorality. However, say over in Muslim countries, they think you're crazy if you agree with Jesus about loving your enemies, but they go, you know what? That sexual immorality stuff, Jesus is right about that. So every culture agrees with the Bible on certain issues and disagrees with the Bible on other issues. Maybe I should put it the other way around. The Bible disagrees with every culture at some point, and you would expect that from a document or a series of documents from God. You would expect that God would have to correct every particular culture at some point, and he does. So it's ironic that the people who say they're progressive Christians are not actually progressive. They're, they're regressive because they just, first of all, they disagree with Jesus, which does not make you progressive. And secondly, uh, you're not advancing anywhere beyond your own preferences if you just accept everything that you think is true and right, even though it disagrees with what God says. Uh, here's what Lewis goes on to say. I want to say... Uh, let's see. Oh, this is, this is critical. Ladies and gentlemen, he says our upbringing and the whole atmosphere of the world we live in make it certain that our main temptation will be that of yielding to winds of doctrine, not that of ignoring them. We are not all, we're not at all likely to be hidebound. We are very likely indeed to be slaves of, wait for it, Fashion. We're going to be slaves of fashion. That's, that's what we're more likely to do. And he's absolutely right. He said, if one has to choose between reading the new books and reading the old, one must choose the old, not because they are necessarily better, but because they contain precisely those truths of which our own age is neglectful. The standard of permanent Christianity, by the way, that's probably why I'm reading a book from 1945 to you right now <laughs> because because when i read it i'm going yeah this guy's exactly right where has this been it's been around a long time frank you just haven't noticed right the spirit of our age we're, we're getting carried away by the spirit of our age we're getting carried away by trends and fads 
I mean, when we're arguing over what a man is and what a woman is, this is trendy. This is a fad. This is a fashion. This isn't reality, ladies and gentlemen. This is a denial of reality. So we got to get back to the truth. Anyway, i got to complete Lewis's point. I'll do so right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek. On the American Family Radio Network website, crossexamine.org, crossexamine with a D on the end of it, .org. We're back in two minutes. What would it be like to go to the Holy Land with the archaeologists who discovered the Pool of Siloam and excavated most of the ancient city of David. Well, you can be a part of that because in November we're going back to Israel and our guide, the guide I always get is the great Eli Shukran who discovered the Pool of Siloam, which is now being more completely excavated. He first uh, discovered it in 2004 and uh, now they're excavating the rest of the pool. So we go back there, we're going to see the entire thing. That's, of course, where Jesus healed the blind man in John chapter 9. And we're going to hit some of the greatest areas of Israel, obviously Jerusalem. We're going to hit the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus spent most of his time, Caesarea, Nazareth. We're going to be all over the country. And then, if you want to add on, there's an add-on to the trip. We're going down to the real Mount Sinai, what I think is the real Mount Sinai. Jabal El-Laws in Saudi Arabia, northern Saudi Arabia, will drive down to... Uh, Elat, which is in the south side of the very end of Israel, will go into Jordan and then drive down to Saudi Arabia and see what appears to be the real Mount Sinai. Charred top, split rock, Islamic graves, pillars, 12 pillars, uh, the uh, oasis you read about in Exodus. It's all there. The real Mount Sinai appears to be in Arabia, just like Paul said in Galatians chapter 4. But I digress. What you need to do is go to crossexamine.org. Click on events. You'll see right there at the top there, uh, Israel tour with Frank Turk and Eli Shukran. And uh, when we go on this trip, you will you will just, I'm amazed every time I go. You'll be amazed as well. I know it's, I know it is uh, cliche to say, but it's true. Uh, going to Israel, going to the Holy Land, unlocks the Bible for you. It, it, it lets you see the Bible like you couldn't see it before. But this trip fills up quickly, so you want to sign up quickly. We only take one bus. We're not one of these tours that have eight buses going and it's there's too many people. No, one bus. We shut it down after we fill up one bus. Uh, so I hope you can join us. Check it out. Uh, okay. Oh, and by the way, one other thing. This is not a cheap trip. We stay at the best places because you're tired when you go to Israel. First of all, you got a time change. Second of all, it's not walk where Jesus walked. It's run where Jesus walked. We want to see a lot, so we stay at the best hotels. It's not a cheap trip. I get that. You can take cheaper trips. I get that, too. If you want to take a cheaper trip, go right ahead. This is not inexpensive, but it is worth it. So check it out. Anyway, let's go back to C.S. Lewis. Uh, God in the Dock, the essay is uh, Christian Apologetics. And he says, we're much more likely to be slaves of fashion and he says, we ought to be reading the old books, not the new books. He says, the standard of permanent Christianity must be kept clear in our minds, and it is against this standard that we must test all contemporary thought. In fact, we must at all costs not move with the times. We serve one who said, heaven and earth shall move with the times, but my words shall not move with the times. 
Matthew 14, verse 35. You also said it in Mark and Luke as well. Yeah, we're not moving with the times. And how many of these churches do you see now trying to move with the times? They're becoming LGBTQ affirming. Uh, they are uh, jettisoning core doctrines of the faith. They think that skinny jeans, fog machines, and guitars is the way forward, and uh, that's what's going to make people true Christians. Not to say you can't wear skinny, skinny jeans, use a fog machine, and play the guitar, but you better be not only saving people, but discipling them. Jesus didn't say, go therefore make believers. He said, go therefore make disciples. And the church is supposed to be a place where Christians go to be equipped to do ministry, according to Ephesians 4. It's not a place just for unbelievers. It's not just an evangelism event. Although you can do that, you better also be trying to make people into disciples. That's what the church is for. And Lewis is saying, let's not move with the times. Let's stand firm in the truth. And he goes on uh, to say, well, gee, this is so good. I can't skip any of it. He says, I'm speaking so far of theological reading. Scientific reading is a different matter. And he goes on to say about science this. Sentences beginning that science is now proved should be avoided. If we try and base our apologetic on some recent development in science, we should usually find it, uh, or we should usually find that just as we have put the finishing touches on our argument, science has changed its mind and quietly withdrawn the theory we have been using as our foundation stone. And he's exactly right on that as well. Now, for those of you that know that uh, when I go to a college campus, I do talk about scientific evidence for uh, the fact that God exists or there's effects that have left behind, left behind that, uh, that appear to be best explained by a cause known as God. But I also talk about philosophical reasons. Why? Because the philosophy is not going to change. The science may change. You're right. You know, science is tentative. Science can be overruled. In fact, I know you, you can't always... Um, you can't always believe everything you read on Wikipedia, but Wikipedia does have a page of scientific theories that have been overturned, major scientific theories, and there's more than 50 of them when you, when you go to that page. You ought to check it out. In any event, we ought to, we can mention the science, as Lewis says, but say, look, like, for example, with the cosmological argument. As you know, in the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, we talk about both lines of evidence that the universe had a beginning. We talk about the scientific lines of evidence and also the philosophical line of evidence. I think the philosophical line of evidence is better than the scientific side, although they're both good. But of course we use both. And the scientific, I mean, we live in a scientific culture, so people are interested in the science. But the very fact that there can't be an infinite number of moments before today show that time had a beginning, that the universe had a beginning, regardless of what science says. Now, personally, I don't think the science appears it's going to change with regard to the beginning of the universe. I mean, the second law of thermodynamics shows beyond any reasonable doubt that the universe had a beginning, not, not to mention the expanding universe and the radiation afterglow and Einstein's theory of general relativity. But even if some of those things were to change, the universe still had a beginning, regardless of what Genesis says. But obviously, Genesis agrees with the science and the philosophy. 
So now you've got scripture, philosophy, and science all saying the same thing. But Lewis is right here. We have to be careful with scientific, with scientific evidence. And he goes on to say this. While we are on the subject of science, let me digress for a moment. I believe that any Christian who is qualified to write a good popular book on any science may do much more than that by any directly apologetic work. Listen up, people who are not directly in apologetics, but maybe you're a scientist. Because what he's going to say here, I think, is spot on, as, as usual. He says, the difficulty we're up against is this. We can make people often attend to the Christian point of view for half an hour or so. But the moment they have gone away from our lecture or laid down our article, they are plunged back into a world where the opposite position is taken for granted. I mean, elsewhere, Lewis has said this. He said that um, it's not the doctrines or beliefs that are argued or debated that are the problem. It's the doctrines or beliefs that are assumed and never debated. Those are the problem ones. Like materialism, it's assumed. It's never debated. Like macroevolution now, it's assumed and never debated, right? And he says those are the problems. Those positions are taken for granted. Here's what Lewis says. As long as that situation exists, widespread success is simply impossible. We must attack the enemy's line of communication. What we want is not more little books about Christianity, but more little books by Christians on other subjects with their Christianity latent. You can see this most easily if you look at it the other way around. Our faith is not very likely to be shaken by any book on Hinduism. But if whenever we read an elementary book on geology, botany, politics, or astronomy, we found that its implications were Hindu, that would shake us. Oh, that's a good insight, isn't it? Imagine if you're reading all those books and you read them and you think they're true and it implies that Hinduism's true. You'd go, uh-oh. That would probably be more persuasive than if you read a, an apologetic book on Hinduism. Because you're probably not going to read it if you're not a Hindu or if you're not searching. So I'm kind of defeating my own work here. I wrote a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Yeah, some atheists will read it, but more Christians read that book. Okay, it firms up the Christians. But it might be more effective if I was a scientist to write a book on, uh, like, say, Robert Jastrow. Robert Jastrow, he wasn't even a Christian. He wrote a book called God and the Astronomers. Now, that shook people. Why? Because he's not a Christian, and he's writing a book that implies, or he says expressly, that, that modern science agrees with Genesis 1. What? Yeah. But if you're, say, a, a Christian physicist, or you're a physicist and you happen to be a Christian, you write a book on physics that implies that Christianity's true or theism's true, that's, gonna, that's going to have an impact on non-Christian people who read your book. Wow. Or biology or botany or any of these things that Lewis is talking about here. Any of these books. He says, it's not the books written in direct defense of materialism that make modern man a materialist. It is that the materialistic assumptions in all the, it, it is, or it is, it is the materialistic assumptions in all the books. In the same way, it is not books on Christianity that will really trouble him, but he would be troubled if whenever he wanted a cheap, popular introduction to some science the best work on the market was always by a christian you see his point here man there's so much more in this essay we're gonna have to pick this up 
uh, and a future podcast because I'm running out of time here. But at the very least, ladies and gentlemen, get this book by C.S. Lewis, God in the Dock. All the essays are great. I just happen to be reading from one of them called Christian Apologetics. And as I say, he, he actually gave this presentation in 1945. And he, <laughs> it's so relevant today. He was way ahead of his time. Now, next week on the podcast, we're going to have Natasha Crane. And I want you guys to think about what you think about the He Gets Us campaign. You saw it during the Super Bowl. Because we're going to talk about it with Natasha on next week's program. So tune in for that. We'll also have a midweek podcast. So check all that out. I'm Frank Turek. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Check it out on wherever you get uh, podcasts. And thanks for those good reviews you're putting up there. See you here next time. God bless.